From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Anna Bernasek. We've been hearing for a long time that robots are coming for our jobs. And now with widespread global unemployment, that sounds even more ominous. But what if robots and AI could actually help with the recovery? Well, it's possible. For instance, in some rural parts of the U.S., artificial intelligence and machine learning are actually making these regions economically viable. One of the big topics we look at at the McKinsey Global Institute is artificial intelligence and how it's impacting work and what that means for society. Today, we have a special bonus episode of Forward Thinking for you. We'll hear an interview with one of the leading technology strategists in the world, Kevin Scott. Kevin is the Chief Technology Officer and Vice President of Artificial Intelligence and Research at Microsoft. He also has a new book out entitled Reprogramming the American Dream. The interview is conducted by MGI's own James Manika. James is the chairman of the McKinsey Global Institute and a senior partner at McKinsey & Company. He's also a deep expert in his own right when it comes to artificial intelligence and machine learning, which is why James sat down with Kevin to discuss how AI might be the key to democratizing technology to work better for all of us. It's a fascinating conversation. See what you think. Thank you so much for having me, James. No, delighted to have you. I've been looking forward to this conversation for some time. Uh, we're going to talk a fair amount of time, spend a fair amount of time on your book. But I wanted to spend some time on some of what you're doing and working on right now. I mean, you're building some of the largest, uh, most complicated computing systems in the world. And much of that is actually being applied to AI uh, systems. What are you most excited about right now and what you're working on in AI? Yeah, there's there's a bunch of stuff that we've been working on for the past couple of years, uh, like in particular, as you mentioned, these very, very large scale computing platforms for training a new type of uh, deep neural network models uh, that some people call unsupervised. We, uh, we've taken to calling them uh, self-supervised learning systems. Um, and it, I mean, it's been really thrilling not only to build all of the systems infrastructure to support these training computations that are absolutely enormous, but to see the progress that we continue to make on these very large uh, self-supervised models, uh, as well as the progress that we're making with deep reinforcement learning is just incredible. I, I, I never thought we would get to some of the milestones that we've been able to hit over the past couple of years. Well, Kevin, as always, you've really said a lot that's interesting in that opening remark. Uh, say more about supervised learning for a moment, because this is the idea that uh, a lot of the AI techniques that we use today mostly learn from examples uh, that we kind of give them. And that's most of what supervised learning has been. But you're talking about going beyond that to self-supervised or unsupervised systems. Why is that such a big shift? Well, since... 2012 or so with the big revolution that's been happening with deep neural networks and machine learning that these these models when doing supervised learning have been able to accomplish a lot in speech recognition and computer vision in a whole bunch of these sort of perceptual uh, domains where we very quickly went from a plateau that we had hit with the prior set of techniques to uh, new performance levels that in many cases approximate or exceed human performance at the equivalent task. But, you know, the challenge with supervised learning is 
you have to have a lot of data and a lot of compute. And the data that you train on is, is, is labels. With self-supervised models, you also are training on huge amounts of data and you need enormous amounts of compute, but you uh, require either very little or in some cases no uh, supervision. So no labels, no examples, so to speak, to tell the model what it is that you want it to do. So the models are training over these enormous amounts of data to learn general representations of a particular domain, and then you use them to solve a whole variety of problems in that domain. And, and like, this is the thing that has just absolutely transformed natural language processing over the past couple of years. But I remember last year when you published your results with Turing and LG, that was quite, that was quite impressive. Yeah. And, you know, so the really interesting thing about the, the mode that we're in right now, because you don't have the constraint of having to supply these models with large numbers of labeled training data points, these examples, uh, you really are in this mode where the models are scaling up mostly as a function of the compute power you can apply to them. Yeah, so when we start training systems with these very large-scale models, does that help us with the other problem that I know you've t talked about and spent some time on, which is the possibility of transfer learning? Because that hopefully will obviate the need to train systems every single time. You know, the really exciting thing that we're seeing with these these big self-supervised models is that transfer learning does work. So that, that means that you can train a model on a general set of data and then deploy it to solve a whole variety of different tasks. That also takes us down the path of potentially democratizing technology access. Yeah. It's one of the things that I wrote about in my book and that is the maybe the primary thing that gets me out of bed every morning and, and makes me really excited to go to work is I really do believe that when we're thinking about technology, we should always be thinking about what platforms we can create that empower other people to solve the problems that they are seeing and to help them achieve the things that they want to achieve. It, it can't just be a small handful of of very large companies or uh, companies that are only located in, in, in these urban innovation centers that are able to really make full use of the tech that we're developing to go solve problems. Uh, like it, it really does have to become democratized. And, you know, the, 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 the thing that I've been telling, uh, telling folks is I've talked about the book is in 2003, Three, 2004, uh, when I wrote my first ma real machine learning system, um, you, you really did have to have more or less a graduate degree in some sort of analytical discipline. Like the, you, you would sit down with these daunting graduate level textbooks and stacks of papers and, um, you know, you had to be relatively mathematically sophisticated in order to understand how the systems worked. 
And then you would spend a whole bunch of time and energy writing a bunch of low-level code to do something. And that first system that I wrote, like I went through this process and it took about six months of coding to solve the particular problem that I was solving. And you fast forward 14 years to 2020, the because of open source software, because we've thought about how to solve these problems in a platform oriented way, because we have cloud computing infrastructure that makes uh, training power accessible to everyone. And because you have things like YouTube and online training materials that help you more quickly understand how all of these framework pieces work. I, I my guess is that a motivated high school student could solve the same problem that I saw 14 years ago in a weekend. Uh, and so like that, that really is a, a tangible testament to like how far these tools have already become democratized. And all of the indicators point to the fact that, that, that they're going to become further democratized over the next handful of years. Yeah, no, it, it, one of the things that's been quite uh, striking for me, Kevin, is uh, I think, as you know, I'm involved in the Broad Institute, which, which is one of the leading genomics research institutes in the world. And today, fully a third of the people there are AI computational people. Yep. Uh, because that's become so necessary and integral to the research enterprise that places like the Broad are doing. But uh, before we leave the question of AI and, and computing, I'm just, you know, I have to ask this question. Where are we, do you think, on this path towards AGI? Uh, and here I'm not really asking you to make a prediction because I know that's difficult, but I'm just curious where you think we are on that journey and also what are some of the big problems we have to solve before we can even get uh, to AGI? Yeah, look, I, I think you probably know this better than I do that the, the whole history of AI since we, you know, at the Dartmouth workshop in 1955 invented the name for the field has been about attempting to create AGI. So that was the, you know, in 1955, the goal of these, you know, luminaries of the AI discipline and of computer science uh, met and like they laid out this roadmap where they were trying to build software that could emulate in a very general way, human intelligence. And that has proven <laughs> to be a very, very difficult task. Um, and it's just sort of unclear exactly how many problems of intelligence you can solve with just more data and just more compute, which I think is one of the reasons that it's so tricky to make accurate predictions about when you get to general intelligence. The other thing that I will say is like every time that we have used AI to solve a problem that we thought was some high watermark of human intelligence, we have changed our mind about how important that watermark was. It was definitely when we were both much younger. Uh, yeah. Like, and, and like, I know this was a problem that people were trying to address when I was in graduate school is like, can we build a computer and AI that can beat a grandmaster at chess? And like, turns out the answer to that was yes. And we did it. And there was a whole bunch of fanfare. And, um, you know, I think it helped us a little bit. It shone a light on uh, like how you could advance a particular part of artificial intelligence. But it certainly didn't mean that the machines were all of a sudden, uh, you know, taking over uh, the role that human beings played. It, it like really hasn't even made a material dent in chess other than some of the techniques that we 
built in our AI are now used to help the humans practice to become better human chess players because that's actually the thing we care about is humans playing humans at chess. Exactly. No, no. I, I remember when I was a grad student, uh, you know, researching, studying AI, we used to think about Turing tests and all kinds of tests, but yeah. we keep moving the goalposts, as you said. Every time we solve a problem, we kind of shift what we think that the watermark really is. But but I want to I want to come uh, to the subject matter, the topics you address in your book. I mean, one of the things I loved about your book is that uh, it also gave me a window into into you, Kevin, because I've always thought about you as a technologist building these very large-scale systems. But you grew up in a uh, in a place that most people don't associate with technology. You grew up in a small town in Virginia. Yes. Say, say more about that. Yeah, so I grew up in this small town in uh, rural central Virginia called Gladys. Um, I, I'm fairly certain that there are more cows in Gladys than there are residents. Like there's one state route that runs through the town. Uh, there isn't even a stoplight to slow traffic down as it flows through. It's a farming community. Um, it is not a place that was associated with technology. Like neither of my parents had gone to college. Uh, I was the first person in my family to like get a four-year college degree. Um, and you know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. And so, you know, when I was born, there was no personal computer. Um, and, you know, I think one of the really pieces of fantastic good luck that I had, and like, there's a lot of good luck that I benefited from uh, in my career is, and in my life, is that, you know, I was you know, 10 or 11 years old, uh, 12 years old, maybe, when, um, like, the personal computer like really started to hit where you had, you know, the Commodore, uh, you know, Commodore C64 and the, you know, Radio Shack color computers. And I was just completely fascinated by these things. I wanted to understand how they worked. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. I remember I had the Sinclair Spectrum. I don't know if you know that. We had in, in the UK and uh, other parts of the world. Uh, but, 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 so one of the things that's quite striking though, which is a big claim that you make, I think, in your book, which is very exciting, is this idea that these technologies in AI in particular can actually bring prosperity to all parts of America, including rural America. Flesh that out a bit more. Say more about why you think that's possible. Well, when I started writing the book, I had been doing machine learning for so long in a bunch of different contexts and had been living in Silicon Valley and working in the technology industry for such a long time that I really had this idea in my head that um, like maybe maybe these technologies weren't going to benefit people in rural America. And so one of the first things I did was I went back home to go chat with some of the people that I grew up with. And I had this aha moment almost the second that I set foot in in some of these places uh, that, that my friends were working. And I, I was just reminded that you know, these are some of the most ingenious and industrious people that I know and that they were already running businesses uh, like they had sort of pivoted uh, with all of the twists and turns that the economy had thrown at them and built these businesses that were already using 
the most advanced technology that they could lay their hands on. And I, I believe that like the machine learning systems are going to get exposed to them and to entrepreneurs who are in these communities in more concrete ways so that they can build even more ambitious things. And if they didn't have this technology, these businesses wouldn't exist. So the reason that they are competitive in this fierce global market for manufacturing is because the automation that they are able to leverage is just as efficient no matter where it's running geographically. And so they created a whole bunch of high-skilled jobs in this tiny little community in central Virginia that wouldn't exist otherwise. And like with the high-skilled job, like you definitely know this better than I do, uh, like they create this this beneficial effect inside of the community. So, um, you know, I, I, I think Enrico Moretti, um, you know, wrote this really – wonderful book called The New Geography of Jobs. So uh, Enrico is an economist at Berkeley. And, uh, you know, like he, you know, in his research, he posited that uh, like a single high skill job can create five uh, lower skill jobs inside of the community where the high skill job is created. And you can definitely see that economic effect in some of these places. But I guess the question in my mind is, why don't we see this happen in more places? Well, you know, the, the thing that I saw, and like th- this is granted just anecdotes, is that it's happening in more places than I thought. As soon as I saw this pattern, I was like, wow, like, you know, where else might this be happening? You can sort of see it at scale in Germany with the Mittelstand, uh, which I think just sort of typifies this model of, uh, you know, like combining the high skill, like highly trained labor and augmenting them with really sophisticated technology, whether it's, you know, a manufacturing business or a services business or whatever it is that they're doing. And like they are, you know, you have lots and lots of these businesses in Germany creating lots of uh, economic output. Um, And, you know, in some ways, I think the Mittelstand is this pillar of the German economy. And, And I, you know, when I started looking here in the United States, I saw more of these sorts of businesses than I expected. I think one of the challenges for getting these businesses running in communities is uh, like partially about capital allocation and like do, do folks, do the entrepreneurs in these communities like have reasonable access to venture capital so that they can you know, try out their most ambitious ideas. Um, and, and then you have this basic, basic stuff that's just shameful that we don't have it solved, like access to broadband and, and some of the, you know, sort of vocational education that you need to make sure that people are able to use these tools effectively to do, uh, you know, do the work of the future. Yeah, and, and I wonder when I because th- when I think about all the examples you've got uh, in your book and the ideas you've got in your book, Kevin, and I try to think about coupling those together with the moment that we're in. So we're now in this extraordinary moment where uh, it feels like the economy is kind of falling out from underneath us, and yet at the same time, there's all this transformation that's required. I'm just wondering, what do you think we could do and America could do in this moment? Uh, to not only capitalize on the ideas that you've got in, in the book, but also, you know, use this galvanizing moment to reimagine what the future might be. 
One of the things that I wrote about in the book is this idea that I think government investment can be a really good catalyst for innovation. So, you know, if you think about the self-driving industry, uh, for instance, like these autonomous vehicles, you know, I would argue that the primary reason that these ingenious people decided uh, when they were graduate students at Stanford and Carnegie Mellon to focus on solving that particular problem because there were these DARPA grand challenge uh, problems. So you had funding that was going to graduate schools that said there's research funding and like a prize at these milestones towards solving this problem. And I think that could be applied in really tangible ways to helping solve some of the big challenges that we as a society face. Um, And like you could even go much more ambitious than something like a DARPA grand challenge. And I don't think it's an either or, like maybe you want to do a bunch of these things, but um, you know, we, we, we ran the Apollo program in the, in the fifties and sixties, um, not because there was anything especially necessary about putting a human being on the moon, um, but because solving that problem was a great great way to focus human ingenuity at a massive scale on a set of technologies that were, uh, you know, that turned out to have been very beneficial, like our modern aerospace industry, like came out of the Apollo program. And, you know, I think we could pick a thing like healthcare, for instance, we could say, you know, enough's enough. Like it's time that every human being on the planet has access to uh, high quality, low cost healthcare. And furthermore, like here's this list of diseases and conditions that we want to radically transform, uh, like cure, eliminate, minimize the impact and suffering uh, from these things. And I think if you spent at the same level of the Apollo program, like maybe you don't even need to spend that much. And it's not, it's not a huge amount. It's like 2% of GDP uh, for a handful of years. I think you really could transform not just human well-being through the the end product of what you're building, but like the process of solving the problem could put into place this infrastructure that uh, could literally define, you know, entire new sectors of the industry and like our economic outputs for, uh, you know, for decades ahead. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think it's 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 quite sobering to remember, to your point, uh, Kevin, that I think the peak of uh, investment in basic R and D as a percentage of GDP was actually in 1964. Uh, that's when it was about close to two percent, uh, and you know it kind of stayed there for a while. Today, it's now dropped to about, at least in the U.S., to about 0.6. Right. So, so I think there's a role, as you said, for what reallocation and investment could actually do to drive the change that we're talking about. But let me ask this, um, you know, there's clearly so much that society and the economy could benefit from in terms of using the kind of the ideas in the book about democratizing technology and innovation, doing it at a very large scale. But uh, there's also always the concern about the potential either misuse or misapplication 
uh, or risks associated with technology. How do you think about that question? How can we be more thoughtful about how to make sure we don't misapply these technologies? One of the ways that I think about it is that as we invented software engineering as a discipline over the course of the past 60 years or so, we realized that finding all the bugs in software is sort of hard. And so we built a whole bunch of practices to try to catch the most common type of software bugs and uh, and a set of techniques to help us mitigate the impact that the bugs have that slip through. And I think we're going to have to build a similar set of things for machine learning models and AI. Just to give you a few examples of uh, you know, what we're thinking about, we at Microsoft have a, a sensitive uses practice for AI now. So anybody who's building a machine learning model uh, that's going to be used in a product at the company uh, has a set of guidelines that define like what is or what isn't a potential sensitive use of that technology. And if it is a sensitive use, then it has to go through a very rigorous review process to make sure that we are using the technology in a way that are making fair and unbiased decisions that, uh, that the data that we're using to train the model and the, the data that we're collecting as a byproduct of the use of the model is treated in a proper uh, proper way, uh, preserving all of our covenants that we have with all of our stakeholders and you know having the degree of transparency and control that you need in the most sensitive situations. Um, and we, we also are, you know, sort of thinking about, um, you know, again, back to this bug, software bug fixing and finding and mitigation uh, paradigm that we've sort of developed over the years. Like one of the interesting things that's happening right now with bias and data, which is something we've talked a lot about as a community over the past handful of years is uh, like we have tools now that can detect when a data set has fundamental biases in it. And we're using GANs, which are uh, another type of neural network uh, to generate synthetic data to compensate for those biases so that we can uh, train on unbiased data sets, uh, even though we may not have representative data that is naturally occurring in the data set to help us train the model in the way that we want. So, you know, it's, it's a, it, it's a whole spectrum of things. And I think the dialogue that we've got right now between stakeholders, like people building these models and people who are sort of analyzing them uh, and sort of pushing us and like, you know, advocating for accountability. Uh, like, I think all of that's good. Uh, it's it's a really good thing that's happening, and and I'm I'm delighted that we have this ongoing debate. Yeah, no, in fact, one of the things I like about what you're describing, Kevin, is that you're emphasizing the fact that there isn't a silver bullet solution to these issues. That it's going to take concerted effort by the engineers, the scientists, the you know, the ethicists, the you know a whole range of people thinking together about how to make sure these systems are safe where we get all the benefits that we should be getting out of them. Absolutely. And Kevin, before we go, I wanted to hear more about the some of the smaller scale AI projects you're working on. I've heard something about an AI coffee maker. Uh, does it know how much caffeine you need, by the way? 
I think that's an uncomputable thing as well. I need lots of caffeine. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I really can't help myself. Uh, like one of the ways that my curiosity manifests as I try to understand the world is like, I just want to build things. Um, you know, and I think it's something that I get from my grandfathers and from my dad who, spent their entire lives, not just in their work, making things with their hands, but like all of their hobbies were about making things with, uh, with their hands and, and creating. And I weirdly have this thing for coffee machines. I've built four of them in the past and, uh, I'm working on one right now, which is a vacuum siphon coffee machine that has an AI user interface, which is, just sort of cognitive dissonance that I'm trying to slam these two things together. So vacuum siphon coffee making has been around since Victorian England, like potentially longer than that, but like they were very popular in Victorian society. And uh, when you look at one of these things, it is almost the literal definition of steampunk. I'm building this steampunk coffee machine that has like a very, very modern user interface on it. So instead of buttons on a screen, it has a speaker, a camera, and a microphone. Uh, and so when you approach the machine, it uses facial recognition to see whether or not it recognizes you or not. If it doesn't, it uh, has a dialogue with you about how you want your coffee made. Uh, and then it offers to remember your preferences uh, associated with your face. Uh, and if it recognizes your face uh, because you've given it your preferences before, it will ask you, uh, Kevin, would you like a cup of coffee? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the funny thing about this machine is that it is, um, I mean, the hard part for me wasn't the, wasn't the AI part. Um, like all of the speech recognition and the face recognition and, the, you know, the code that you have to write to uh, store preferences and whatnot is like not that complicated given open source tools and like a bunch of fa fairly straightforward stuff. And, you know, again, the electronics required to run this stuff is a little bit pricier now than you would uh, probably want to put in an actual consumer grade coffee device. But like the fascinating thing, and like this is why I wanted to do this, is that. You know, the $30 worth of electronics it takes right now to run the AI part of the machine plus, the, you know, the, the control loop for the rest of the device, um, like the compute there is still one of the places where Moore's Law is working well. So these low-cost microprocessors and microcontrollers are on uh, on silicon fabrication technology that's a few generations behind. And so those cheap, microcontrollers and microprocessors are going to be getting much more capable over the coming years. And so, you know, I think we might get to the point soon where you can do all of this stuff that I'm doing for three bucks or a dollar uh, worth of electronics, which then makes it a very feasible way to build a user interface for something. It, it's coming. Well, that, that, that's very cool. Well, I can't wait to, to try out the coffee. Hopefully it's actually Good coffee too. <laughs> yeah, we will see. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Kevin, I want to thank you again so much for joining us. This was a, such a pleasure for me and for hopefully the audience that's going to listen to this. I'm looking forward to when we catch up next and continue our conversations. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And as always, it's a pleasure chatting with you. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com slash MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. 
If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Michael Chewy and me, Anna Bernasek. Our producer is Lauren Melling, and our audio engineer is Colin Warren.